This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's the poem for today. For the eyes of the children, the last to melt, the last to vaporize. For the lingering eyes of the children, staring. The eyes of the children of Buchenwald, of Vietnam, and Johannesburg, for the eyes of the children of Nagasaki, for the eyes of the children of Middle Passage, for Cherokee eyes, Ethiopian eyes, Russian eyes, Mississippi eyes, for all that remains of the children, their eyes staring at us, amazed to see the extraordinary evil in ordinary men. That is the poet Lucille Clifton. Lucille Clifton was born June 27, 1936, in Depew, New York, and she died February 13, 2010, in Baltimore, Maryland. She studied at Howard University before transferring to State University of New York at Fredonia which is just southwest of Buffalo, near the Canadian border. Lots of snow. She wrote many, many books of poetry, and two of those books, in fact, were chosen as Pulitzer Prize finalists, with a third that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And we've talked about the position of Poet Laureate before. In the previous case, it was the U.S. Poet Laureate, and that was Robert Hayden, the subject of our last explication. And Lucille Clifton was the Poet Laureate for the state of Maryland from 1974 to 1985. And again, for those who either didn't listen or don't remember uh, the, the last episode, a Poet Laureate is the senior most advocate for poetry in the education system and um, works very closely with the government in the for Robert Hayden, that was the U.S. government. For Lucille Clifton, that was the state of Maryland's government to advance poetry and the like in the fine arts and educational spaces. And one interesting thing about Clifton's poetry in general is that nearly all of her poems, including today's that you just heard, lack both capitalization and most punctuation. In fact, The only period, and I know you can't see this, but if you've been to the website or visit the website, you'll see this poem. And the only period in today's entire 19-line poem is at the very end, after the word men. The only other punctuation in the whole poem is commas that occasionally separate various spaces and lines, and they're used appropriately. But there's not a lot of punctuation in her work, and there's almost no capitalization. The rare capitalization that she does is intended to bring emphasis to certain things. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But when I read this at first, 
I went to the Poetry Foundation website to get a nice clean print out of this. And the Poetry Foundation website is wonderful. It allows you to search by author and topic, and you can get the the, the source of the original poem and learn a little bit more about the poet who penned it as well. And so when I went to the website and I was looking at this, when this poem is presented correctly, the title of the poem is not capitalized either. The title of the poem is Sorrow Song. And both sorrow and song are not capitalized, nor are any of the words in this entire poem. And it's a little bit strange to read. It almost has a, at least at first glance, it almost appears like a young child wrote it because capitalization is a weird thing. It's almost a whole second set of letters that you have to learn in addition to the alphabet. So a lot of times we don't use them. And there are still adults that don't use them, I guess. But it made me wonder. Poets don't generally do anything that is not deliberate. When they put pen to paper or finger to keyboard, they do so deliberately. So I asked myself, why? Why would you, as a poet, and again, we're talking about somebody who wrote poetry during the mostly the second half of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century. Why, in the day and age where you have a word processor for most of your career that will autocorrect things for you, why would you go through all the effort to deliberately not capitalize and not use punctuation in your poems? It wasn't something that I'd really seen before. I don't think this is necessarily unique, but again, we've talked about this. I'm not a poetry expert here. I'm not an English major. I haven't spent a lot of time steeped in poetry throughout my life. So this is a new thing for me. So I thought on it for a while, probably longer than I should have, which is a common theme on this show. But I asked myself, what purpose does capitalization in general serve? Same thing with punctuation. What purpose does punctuation serve when we write? And as I was thinking about this, the analog that came to mind was, you know, bumpers on a bowling alley. If you've ever gone to a bowling alley as a kid, sometimes they have the big inflatable ones that fill the gutters. I remember blue ones at the bowling alley that I went to when I was a kid. Sometimes they have rails that can be put in place or lifted into place. And those rails or those bumpers are there to guide the ball towards its destination, the general direction. Now, it's important to note it's, it, that while it's designed to keep you out of the gutter, it is not designed to guarantee you a good score or a strike. You can roll a ball down a bowling alley that has bumpers on it, and it can hug that bumper all the way down and knock over one pin at the very end. So again, it's a general direction. It guides us in a general direction, the ball in a general direction towards the pins. Now, you may get a strike. It doesn't ensure a strike, but it almost always ensures a hit. It ensures you land in the right area. Punctuation and capitalization guide our speech. They give us a guide, whether we realize it or not, uh, to show emphasis, where we should put emphasis. It also helps to meter out the way that we read and speak. If you think about where a period is, you know from your childhood, from your education most likely, that a period is a pause, right? It's almost a stop. There's a breath in the middle there. That's on purpose. And speaking of which, it also helps us to control our breath. One of the more interesting things that I saw at a presidential library that I visited in, I visited the Bush, one of the Bush, um, president libraries in Texas. And one of the things that they had on display there was a small thing, was a speech written on a piece of paper 
And what the president had done is gone in and marked where to pause. And some of those pauses were for applause, but others were just to allow him to breathe. And I thought that was interesting that somebody who had probably delivered hundreds, if not thousands of speeches in his life, had taken the time to go and, and mark that down. But capitalization helps to do that for us. Punctuation helps to do that for us. Commas, semicolons, capital letters, they tell us things about what's written. So if a poet deliberately leaves those out, we, in this case, to go back to the analogy of the bowling alley, the, we, the ball, we wander, right? And that might lead to an improper conclusion, but also it gives room for interpretation. So in a way, by taking the capitalization, nearly all the capitalization and nearly all the punctuation out of her poems, Clifton is giving us space to wander, to take her words, to read them as we see fit, and to interpret them potentially differently than how she may have written them. In much the same way we've talked about art in the past, how two people can stare at a piece of art on a wall and draw two completely different conclusions about that piece of art. One may not care at all, the other one find, may find it to be the most profound thing they've ever seen in their entire life. So too, with a poem that doesn't have these capitalization and punctuation bumpers to guide its reader. So in this way, I see Clifton's work as more, the term that comes to mind is alive, than the more punctuation and capitalization restricted works that others may put out. And that's not to say that I want every poet to start adopting the no punctuation and capitalization rule, because it is a little bit exhausting to read. But, taken in small doses, it can yield some pretty interesting interpretations. If you think about it, without capitalization and punctuation, you could read the same poem multiple times and draw completely different inferences from that poem. The meter may change, the the pace may change. The stringing together of words may change. And as such, you may draw a completely different conclusion from that poem the second, third, or fourth time you read it. So now that you know that Clifton doesn't include a lot of punctuation and capitalization, I'm going to play the clip of her reading the poem, and that is her, Lucille Clifton herself, reading the poem. So you'll get to hear where she puts emphasis and where she doesn't. Now imagine that she's reading from a poem with no capitalization, no punctuation, and what you hear may not be what she says in the literal sense. Or you may wonder why she puts together certain passages and certain strings of words in ways that if there was normal punctuation and capitalization, she might not have. So here's the poem one more time for you to listen to. For the eyes of the children, the last to melt, the last to vaporize. For the lingering eyes of the children, staring. The eyes of the children of Buchenwald, of Vietnam and Johannesburg. For the eyes of the children of Nagasaki, for the eyes of the children of Middle Passage, for Cherokee eyes, Ethiopian eyes, Russian eyes, Mississippi eyes, for all that remains of the children, their eyes staring at us, amazed to see the extraordinary evil 
in ordinary men. So let's now do what we always do and go back to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Writing Center's guide on how to conduct a poetry explication. And if you've been with me now, this should be becoming more routine. It certainly is for me. There are six questions that we're going to explore. The first of which is, in this poem, what is being dramatized? Well, this has been easier in the past. I think the first couple of poems that we did here, this was a little bit easier. For this one, it really depends on how far in or out we want to zoom on this particular poem. I could argue that it is life in general, or it is the planet Earth, or it's history. But maybe it's war. There's a lot of references to things here that are that are warlike. You think of World War II, both in the Eastern and Western theaters. There's references to war. You know the the wars in America to expand the nation. There's reference to apartheid in South Africa, which is in a way uh, was a war. Um, you could also say it's a it's oppression that's being dramatized here. Um, so whether you think it's life or history or war or oppression or something else, um, there's there's certainly something here. And, and some things that she calls out are, you know, the Holocaust and Vietnam. And interestingly, I know you, again, can't see this, you're only listening, but Vietnam is one word. It is a country, it is a one-word country title. But in this poem, not only is Vietnam not capitalized, as I already said before, but it's broken up into two words, Viet and Nam. And generally speaking, when Vietnam, the country, one word, is broken into two words like that, it is deliberate and it is meant to symbolize the division of that country. Which, if you know the history there, the North and South Vietnamese people, um, the, the conflict that took place there over the course of more than 20 years, and honestly way, way, way before that as well, it's broken. So Viet and Nam, separated by space, is meant to symbolize division. And I think that was probably deliberate on Clifton's part, because certainly she would have seen on a globe, had she looked, that Vietnam is one word. But she deliberately made it two, which is interesting in its own right. She references South Africa, again, apartheid, and the the, the racist legislation that, that held that country with massive division for decades. And then it also references Japan, um, which of course is a reference to uh, Nagasaki specifically, again, not capitalized, but reference to nuclear war or the nuclear bombs that were dropped there at the end of, or the atomic bombs that were dropped there at the end of World War II. So that's what's being dramatized, is some, some variation thereof, history, life, war, oppression, something like that. Second question is, who is the speaker? And this is an interesting one, because again, I think this was relatively easy in Hayden's poem that we went over a few uh, months ago. It's a child. It's a child talking about their their life in the past. In this case, you don't actually know who the speaker is for quite some time through this poem. It's not until the very end that you realize who it is. And the key word that gives it away is the word us, when she uses the word us at the end. So therefore, we can infer that the speaker in this case is us. We are the speaker. And again, we don't find that out till later on in the poem when she gets to the line... For all that remains of the children, their eyes, staring at us, amazed to see the extraordinary evil in ordinary men. So staring at us. So we are the speaker in this case. And then we ask ourselves, well, what happens in the poem? That's the third question. What happens in the poem? At least for me, when I read this poem, and I've read it as I usually do many, many times, as I've 
prepared for this episode. What comes to my mind is a sea of kids, a sea of children, almost as if parents or the adults in the room are elevated on some kind of platform. That's what I see. I see almost like a town square full of children looking up at the, at the adults. And there are many, many, many more children in this picture in my mind than there are adults, which is pretty accurate. But the children are looking up to the parents and they're curious, inquisitive, the way that children are. So if we say that, you know, it's war that's being dramatized here. So they're looking up at their parents who, who vote for the war. They're looking up and seeing politicians dressed to impress suits, ties, fancy dresses, jewelry, who approve the war, and even members of the military who, who fight the war. They're looking up and they see these people in uniform and their parents and their politicians who are, are dressed for success. And they're looking and they're curious and they're inquisitive and they're judgmental and they're learning and maybe repeating. And that's what I see is the poet in this case, utilizing us as the speaker, laying out a series of events that children have seen, that our children have seen, that the next generation and the generation after that see when their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents participate in, allow, condone these types of acts. We're passing that down. And we just talked last episode about generational patterns. And this is a generational pattern. And I think that's what Clifton is trying to call out in this. Is It is a generational pattern. This is what happens in the poem. She is going back through history. She's going all the way back hundreds of years, even. And talking about the Native American children. The Cherokee eyes, Cherokee being a Native American tribe and using them as a representative for all of the American tribes, I'm sure, uh, is using that as an example of how of, of what those children saw. What what did the children in the during the early years of the United States, what did the children of the new settlers witness their parents do in order to secure a space, to secure a new life? What did they do to other people? What did those Cherokee children's eyes see as these settlers came over on ships and pushed into their territory and took from them what they had just as much right as anybody to claim? That's the question. So she's she's calling out a, a social narrative. She's highlighting these various acts. And, it, and there's, a, there's a discomfort with this poem, too. So there's this discomfort at looking at this sea of children in my mind, looking up to these parents, and and again, are they learning from the actions of their parents and bound to repeat them? If we look to history as an example, the answer is probably yes. So then we move on to the fourth question, when does the action occur? And of course, I just mentioned that we're talking about hundreds of years ago up to and including the modern day today, because a lot of these things are still going on. Where is the speaker is the fifth question. Um, and I, I view the, the speaker as almost an intermediary between us and the children. The, the speaker is saying, look, here are the children. Here are the eyes of the children upon you. The eyes of the children are looking at you. And they're saying, this is what they see. This is they, they, they can see the extraordinary evil in ordinary men. And is that really what we want to be modeling for them? 
So to me, the speaker, while the speaker is us, I also kind of view it as this weird intermediary. And I think that's some of the tension in this is, am, am I telling this story to myself? Is somebody else telling this to me as a cautionary tale? I don't know. But I can't help but imagine that there's somebody who, while the parents maybe, you know, going back to my analogies, I'm, I'm kind of fleshing this out live on the air, which is, um, you know, what I promise to do. I try not to read other analyses of poems and things before we go at it. But if I'm imagining a bunch of children looking up to a platform that has a bunch of adults on it, you can almost imagine the adults oblivious to the children. They don't realize that they're being watched. They don't realize that they're being learned from. They don't realize that they're modeling certain behaviors that those children will internalize. And when it's their turn to lead and parent and fight, they will do what they have seen modeled for them by those that went before them. So it almost feels to me like there's an intermediary here. Maybe the intermediary in this case is the poet. Maybe Clifton is deliberately calling us to look down from the platform where we find ourselves and remember that we are being watched, that we are being judged, and we are being learned from. And number six, the last question is, why does the speaker feel compelled to speak? Is this a lesson for us? Potentially. I certainly think that there was some... Uh, some social, socio-political motivation here, potentially, by Clifton to write this poem. She certainly called out some of the worst atrocities in the history of mankind. But in a way, she was able to do that and frame it so that it doesn't come across as angry. I mean, at no point when you read this do you feel like the author is angry, or the poet or the speaker is angry, or overtly shaming. Yes, these are some of the worst atrocities perpetrated against mankind by mankind in the history of mankind, but it's not shaming as much as it is just observing, just pointing out that there are children's eyes on you. And speaking of eyes of the children, it's interesting, this poem, and I looked because I was curious, I already mentioned that it's 19 lines, one period in 19 lines at the very, very end, but there are 81 words in this poem. And Eyes of the Children is used six different times in the course of those 81 words. And so that's, and the word eyes is used 10 times. So you have six uses of the word children and 10 uses of the word eyes. That's 16 words out of 81. That's 20% of this poem that's devoted just to the concept of children's eyes. And why do that? Why not just say it once and then list all the atrocities and then say ordinary men can be evil? That, that would theoretically convey a similar tone and similar emphasis or similar significance, if not the same emphasis. And I think that's the key. I think the key is the emphasis. I think it is a reminder that if you look at the trajectory of human history, that there have always been children watching. And if you just say it once, it's easy to discount. Because you know, I mean, we all know that children watch, they look to adults for modeled behavior and how they should behave and how they should act. And the fact that she says it six different times throughout the course of this poem is almost an analogy to life in that we need to constantly remember. We need to be constantly reminded that children are always watching. And we talked at the beginning of the episode about the fact that her poems don't have any capitalization or almost no capitalization. And so too in this poem. There's not one word capitalized in this poem. Not Buchenwald, not Nagasaki, not Vietnam, not Cherokee, none of them. And what I found interesting as I thought about that is, okay, it 
what what does that do? I mean, as we said, it, it removes some of the bumpers from the bowling alley, so to speak. But it also puts it takes away the the significance of one word over another. When you capitalize Nagasaki or Vietnam or Cherokee or American, you make them of great you're showing that they are of greater importance. But in this case, because we just talked about the fact that the word children is in this poem six times, the fact that children and all of those cities are not capitalized, to me, is another way to emphasize that don't think that these children are any less important than these cultures or people or countries or cities. The children are just as important. She could have, I guess, taken it a step further and emphasized and put the word children in capital letters in every instance in this poem. And that would have said that the children are even more important than those places. It completely inverted the whole structure on its head. But I think, again, much the same as repeating the word children throughout this poem, not capitalizing those cities and cultures and peoples shows that children should not be downplayed. I think that's the point here. I think that's one of the main points of this poem, is that children need to be recognized as ever-present and ever-vigilant and not be forgotten about. So I'm going to say them, I'm going to say the word children many times in my poem, and I'm going to put it on the same level, grammatically speaking, as all of these otherwise more, quote-unquote, important things. And as I said, there's a, there's, a little bit of, there's a little bit of sadness that comes from reading a poem like this. When you see thrust before your very eyes, just reference to some of these things, never mind the gory details of all the things that went on for each of these things to make it into this list, you know, the things that happened in Johannesburg for years and years and years, and arguably still do today to some degree, and how painful that is for people and how much harm was done and how many people's lives were ended at Nagasaki and Buchenwald. Look at the atrocities that have happened, you know, in Russia over history and in, in Ethiopia and some of the civil wars and things that have happened in that region of the world. So there's sadness to this. And sad that we, myself included, justify these things. Because every one of these events has a justification, doesn't it? And some are less justifiable than others. But today, I sit in the United States and know that at least a portion of where I live, where my family lives, where my friends live, or where something that we call part of the United States resides, or where we get goods, or food or water from, at one point belonged to the Native Americans. And we justify it. We pushed them off of the land. We took from them. And we justify it, right? We say, well, it's better now. Things are better now. This is just part of history. This is just how things go. But that's a justification, right? And it deserves some analysis. And I think that's what ultimately Clifton wants us to do here, is she put these things, she chose the people and the countries and the atrocities that occurred specifically to highlight those things to us and to remind us that while the song of history is sorrowful, the eyes of the children are watching and we can make the world a better place. We can choose to do it differently. We can choose to model different behavior. We can choose to be better, choose to make a better world. And not give in to the extraordinary evil that resides in each and every one of us, just waiting to be unlocked. Until next time, 
I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks as always for listening.